Before starting this episode, I'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which the University of New England sits today. And I would also like to pay my respects to elders past and present. Hello there, fellow geoscience aficionados. You are listening to a special series of the Nice Chats podcast from the Geology Podcast Network with Loon. I am Dr. B and in each of these episodes, I will interview one of three researchers from Loon. And we will share with you a little bit of our knowledge and expertise in research of geosciences. Each of our episodes has a central theme. And since us, the Loon folks, will walk you through the various subjects, you don't need to worry about having any previous knowledge of what we will be talking about. As long as you are passionate about the study of geosciences, we will take care of feeding you all the information that you need in a casual and fun environment. In this special episode of Nice Chats, we'll turn our attention to an important group of metamorphic rocks. Rocks that have experienced a lot of pressure even more pressure than a graduate student in the last week before their thesis submission. Ooh, man, been there. Today we are discussing high-pressure and ultra-high-pressure rocks with Dr. Timothy Chapman. Tim is a research fellow at the University of New England and is a member of the Lito Lab, or LOOM for short. He's one of the people behind the recent revitalization of the group and the exciting science that is currently taking place over there. Hey Tim, uh, welcome to our podcast. How are you doing? I'm good. Um, thanks for thanks for having me. Um, yeah, yeah, thank you for thank you for uh, for joining us. And I seen here on my uh, my little Google stalking that I did that you've studied in Sydney. Are you originally from Sydney? Yes, I'm from the um, from the western part of Sydney uh, called the Blue Mountains. Ah, so, okay. Oh, Blue Mountains. Yeah, I've heard yeah, of that. Oh, so nice. You're not really. Um, they're just, just a bit taller than everything else around. <laughs> right. Uh, right. Uh, it's, it's funny, like, uh, how in New South Wales they have the Australian Alps, right? And uh, yep. clearly they've never been to the Alps. So. No. <laughs> it's, it's aspirational. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Um, anyway, so you're from Sydney. I have to ask you something. Is 42 Wallaby Way a real address? Wallaby Way. 42 Wallaby Way. Yeah. Do you uh, know if that's a real address? Oh, probably. <laughs> yeah. Do you know if there's a dent dentist office there? <laughs> so that's the address from um, Finding Nemo, you know? Oh, P. Sherman, yeah. 42 Wallaby Way. I mean, it is Australia, so I wouldn't, it wouldn't surprise you. Probably not in Sydney, though. <laughs> okay. Um, oh, yeah. So I, I, I've only been in Sydney for... Um, a few hours. I had this very long layover or yep. connection there, uh, and uh, it was supposed to be like two hours, but then got uh, increased to like eight hours or something because of a of a delay. Uh, and what I did, this was my only time in Sydney. I just took the train. I took yep. a selfie in front of the opera house, <laughs> crossed that off the list, and then went back to the airport immediately. Well, there you go. You've done Sydney then. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Uh, something else that is a very touristic thing to do is to go like across the bridge. Have you ever done that? Yep. Oh, I haven't climbed the bridge, but I've 
I've gone across it. Um, uh-huh. So, but yeah, I've heard the climbing is probably nicer. Oh yeah, man. I imagine it must be really cool. I don't know. I, I, I have a little bit of, um, you know, I get a little bit anxious or I don't know. Um, how do you call it? Vertigo when I'm in yep. uh, climbing. They, in, in Western Australia, they have these big, what do they call the, those trees? I have Sylvia here with me today for the interview, uh, <laughs> so I'm not talking by myself. Um, and uh, you climb them, and it's just like a little, um, like are, are some some rods that are just drilled in and stuck into the into the tree, and that's all you have. There's like no security, <laughs> like fallback. Man, we went up that thing. Yeah. My hands were so sweaty, and I was <laughs> gripping the thing like so hard. That was a real test of like, you know, like That's confronting right. your fears. I think I'd be the same. I hate heights as well. So. Oh, man. Okay. Dude. <laughs> it's funny because um, I also did the, the tree walk, the treetop walk, which is really, really high as well. Yep. And it was, uh, I, I just had, I had just gotten the Apple watch. So I was measuring my heart rate and it was crazy. It was like at 160, <laughs> 170. It was super high. <laughs> yeah, well, you prefer um, the ground. Yeah, yeah exactly. man. Me too. Me too. Fire for sure. Okay, so, so you have to uh, come back to Sydney by the sounds of it. There is other some other things to see. That's yeah, like, I know. just yeah. I don't know. I I mean, I wish I had traveled a bit more around Australia, but um, you know what it is. You know how it is. I mean, I was doing my my PhD, so I didn't really have time to do much. You know. Yeah, yeah. yeah no, I hope like I can much. go to a conference or something. That would be great. Okay, so um, Tim, of course you have participated of the game from the first episode of the Loon series, so you're aware mm-hmm. that we always start each episode with a bit of a play in order to break the ice and get a bit comfortable. And today we're going to play a brand new game called Ripple Me This. So I always try to make my game titles into geology puns. Um, you know, they're not always clever, but sometimes they're quite good. <laughs> I'll give you a <laughs> riddle to solve and you need to give me the correct answer in order to win. Okay. And these are all geoscience related riddles. Let's see how this goes. This is the first time. So I don't know how it's going to go. Uh, are you good with riddles or? Uh, I'm not too bad. <laughs> we'll find out, I guess. <laughs> I'm terrible at them. So, you know, if you can't get these, like, don't feel uh, bad because I don't think I would have gotten any of them. But anyway. <laughs> All right. My first riddle is this. Uh, no, actually, the first thing I want to say is how aware are you of, like, atmospheric processes? Do you understand them a little bit? A little bit, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you see me, I'm much more comfortable with the anoxic atmosphere some 2.7 billion years ago. But, you know, let's give this one a try, okay? (laughs) All right, first riddle is, what is the place on Earth where the wind always blow from the south? Hey friends, I'm going to leave three seconds at the end of every question so that you can try to answer the riddle before Tim does. Uh, If you want to have more time, then you can just pause at those points. Um, It's going to be very easy to know when the timer starts because I'm going to put a very, very professional sound effect. So here it goes. 
Bing, bing. Sao Paulo? Oof. No, you see, if the wind blows from the south, it's the North Pole. Yeah, yeah. The North Pole, okay, yeah. It was the right, like, you know, type of thinking, just uh, just got the two poles. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, as soon as I said it, I was like, no, it's the other pole. <laughs> oh, but, you know, if you if you want to change your answer, that's fine, too. Huh? This game doesn't have a... <laughs> it's not as competitive as the one that we played in the first, uh, in the first episode. <laughs> okay. Next one. On the earth, I am dead. Though I live on the moon, I am in no crater and I am in every lagoon. What am I? Bing, bing. On the earth, I'm dead. Though I live on the moon, I am in no crater and I am in every lagoon. What am I? Well, my first impression is C, but... Um, this is exactly the kind of riddle I would never get. Moon and lagoon. I'm not sure. No, I think <laughs> you beat me there. So it's the letter O or the letter N because it's not on Earth oh, I nor Crater, but it's both on Moon and Lagoon. <laughs> I didn't get it either. <laughs> this one is a tricky one. Let's, if, you, if you guessed this one, please uh, send us a message and let us know that you did, because I think it's a very, very tough one. All right, I think this one will have a bit more luck. The thunder comes before the lightning. And the lightning comes before the cloud. The rain dries all the land it touches, wrapping the earth in a blood red shroud. What am I? Bing bing! A dust all? Uh, no. The rain dries all the land. Yeah, it's like, you know, whatever falls from this event. Yeah. dries the land so it's like you know hot and uh, and uh, yeah create causes it to to dry let's say this is a solar storm or something oh an eruption yeah <laughs> okay <laughs> no, there you go <laughs> you can't yeah. take things too literally <laughs> <laughs> a volcanic eruption of course that's yeah. it's great uh okay last one I'm a metal, but not gold. I'm a god, but not Venus. I'm a planet, but Mars. I'm not. I move up when I get hot. Bing, bing. Mercury. Yeah, good job, man. This one, Sylvia didn't get it before. She couldn't think of the thermometer, you know, that moves up when it gets hot. <laughs> Perfect, perfect. Uh, speaking of Venus, did you see they're sending some, um, some uh, how do you call them? Uh, rovers over, no, not rover, um, like, you know, the, how do you call them? Not probed either. Um, they're sending like a mission to Venus to, uh, to collect data from the, from the planet, you know. Oh, really? Na NASA announced yesterday, yeah. It's oh, okay, cool. like a probe or something. 
Yeah, like, you know, the ones that they, the missions they sent to Mars, they're sending two of them to, yeah, to right. Venus now. Yeah, oh, wow. it's pretty cool, pretty interesting. Yeah. I mean, so much research has come from uh, from those rovers and the, and the probes in Mars that uh, I'm very excited about this one. Yeah, yeah. Hey friends, reach out to us on our social medias and please let us know if you got the answers to any of the riddles. Uh, go check out Loon's page and social medias. Uh, we have added those to the show notes. And if you're thinking of studying geology, go and have a look at the resources from UNE. Uh, keep listening to these special episodes to find out more about the opportunities and also cool advantages of Loon and New England. If you have ideas for future episodes or guests, please write to our email nicechats at gmail.com. Please subscribe to Nice Chats and give us a five-star review. So, Tim, I'm sorry. Uh, I didn't mean to put you under pressure with the game. No, but... no, you're <laughs> But speaking of pressure, let's get into our subject of today. Um, so actually, I don't think that I've ever seen in real life a high-pressure metamorphic rock. What do they look like? Well, yeah, they're, they're very pretty. They're worth, they're worth seeing because <laughs> you get nice, usually have fairly big crystals. Um, and I, my opinion is they look sort of like some of the best rocks. <laughs> Okay. Um, and because you get a nice sort of colors commonly uh -huh. they're bright green and um and red so they're perfect for italians <laughs> <laughs> um and uh and sometimes you also get uh blue ones um and so yeah they're very pretty rocks nice crystals um but yeah they can be challenging to find and okay. also um Commonly, they to preserve the nice, pristine, high-pressure rocks is is sort of uh, difficult as well. So, right. takes takes a bit to get your eye in, but they're well worth mm -hmm. it. Um, and uh, you said that they're red, and that's because of garnet. Yep. So they're red because of garnet, and they're usually um, green because of uh, a clinopyroxene, a sodic clinopyroxene called onthesite. So we sort of call them uh, Christmas tree rocks. Oh, okay. They're usually red and a, and a deep sort of green. Um, yeah, so that's that's one of the common ones. Uh, mm -hmm. But sometimes you can also get ones with blue crystals, uh, blue and red, uh, blue and green, um, and things like that. So they're yeah they're pretty pretty impressive looking rocks. Yeah, that's cool, and I'm sure that Sylvia appreciates them because I know that. And also our listeners that listen to the episode with um, with Francesca about exoplanets, they would they should also know that garnet is her favorite mineral. So she would appreciate <laughs> That's that. That's right. But I remember actually the first time I saw a blue schist, blue schist rock in yep. the um, Zermatt Sass area. Oh yeah, yeah. The Italian part. Yep. Uh, I was uh, I was really speechless. Amazing, uh, yep. very big blue crystals. Yep. Um, of amphibole, beautiful. Yep. 
Yeah. And you get nice in places in um, in the Shiza Lanza zone, you get the big garnet as well, which is pretty impressive. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, the uh, yeah, the Eclogite from the Shiza Lanza zone are pretty stunning as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I think my favourite one is um, I forget the towns. It's in northern Italy, and there's the Roman road, and they've carved it into an Eclogite. Oh, <laughs> and, oh wow. It's really cool. It's just like next, next through like a, a passage there, and then you have this Roman road and the wheel ruts, and it's just going through a, a beautiful bit of eclogite. You're just like, well, this is pretty cool. Amazing. <laughs> That's Amazing. awesome. Um, how can we tell that a certain rock has experienced high pressure? Uh, we mentioned a few diagnostic minerals. Maybe you can go into a bit more detail of what are the telltale signs of high pressure? Yeah, so um, the minerals are usually the key. So um, it's about, so different minerals will form at different pressures and different temperatures in, in rocks. Um, and so the common one being eclogite is if we um, sort of cook a basalt what happens is we will probably end up with different amphiboles. We'll start with a, a blue amphibole as we go up pressure, which is called glaucophane. Uh, and so that's telling us about uh, what sort of conditions it forms. And if we keep going to higher and higher pressure, we will start to get omphacite, uh, the green pyroxene and garnet. And so depending on the proportion of those, we actually gives us an indication we're at high pressure. And then, the other thing we can do is you can actually look at the chemistry of the uh, different minerals and that will give us another indication of how how high a pressure we are. So if the omphacite has lots of sodium in it, it actually had probably formed at higher pressures. Um, and then if you keep going, we can get to other more, you know, things like diamond um, is a classic indicator and a girl's best friend. <laughs> um, of high pressure and the other common one well that, that's of ultra high pressure i should say the other common one is um if quartz changes to a, a denser form called coazide uh, okay. and that also shows that we're going up high pressure but so in essence we we look at the rocks and we look at their composition and we can start to put together and we have a few ways we can actually calculate what pressure the rocks formed under um, but in a broad sense, that's what we're looking for. So key sort of indicator minerals that tell us how deep we've gone. Yeah. Mm, that's cool. And um, when we say high pressure, what kind of pressures are we talking about? So, yeah, this is, this is an interesting one because it's, um, it's, of course, it's a relative term. So people, certain people's high pressure is different to other people's high pressure. Yeah. <laughs> but... Um, <laughs> You know, so if you talk to someone that works on the core, uh, you know, they want very, very high pressures. But for me, I would usually say it's something about uh, one gigapascal, which is about probably about 30 to 40 kilometers depth um, would be sort of what I would consider high pressure. So anything above that. Um, and then, you know, so then you can, you go various stages about how, how far deeper you go. Um, and then if the next indicator would probably be what we call ultra high pressure, 
um, which is at about 2.6 to 2.7 gigapascals. So, um, you know, that's about, what is that? 26,000 times the, pre the pressure of an atmosphere on the surface. Um, oh my God. And then that's, you know, yeah. Yeah, so that, that's what we call ultra high pressure. So they're probably rocks that we think have been buried to like a greater than a hundred kilometers in the earth and brought back. So they've, you know, they've been squeezed a lot. <laughs> yeah, that, that's actually uh, what I was gonna ask you next is what type, in what type of geological tectonic context can you know we observe this ultra high pressure because i would imagine they're not you know everywhere yeah so the the most common one would be subduction zones mm -hmm. um where we have the oceanic lithosphere is being essentially buried into the upper mantle um that's the sort of one of the key places we can get it because partly the um production of actually guide has helped helping to drive that process because you get these dense dense rocks that actually will sink into the mantle um and so the you know, the lithosphere will go down to you know or theoretically it keeps going but sometimes it comes back up and we can actually actually look at these rocks that have formed down there um so that's the main one but the other cases you know, classic case for things like diamonds and things like that is at the bottom or the root of a Cratonic lithosphere where it's very thick and um, uh, you can get high, high and ultra high pressure minerals down there, um, but circumstantially they're slightly different to the to the common occurrences of eclogite that we that I'm okay. Aware. And in the case of these second types, how do they raise to the surface? So they've got to come up in a in a volcanic pipe. Um, okay. Like a, it's called a, usually in kimberlites, um, so you have to have some pipe that essentially entrains them uh, and brings them to the surf very surface very quickly. Um, so the you know things in the diamond mines in South Africa and things like that are usually in these pipes, and there's a few in Australia too. Yeah, in this That's in the old Archean lithosphere. I think that could be interesting for our not geoscience audience also how to. How do you get this uh, eclogite in a subduction kind of environment that have been uh, at a hundred kilometers down the earth to go up to go up and then study these rocks that have been like at uh, such a high pressure? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So that's it, it's almost um, half the interest is actually how do we how do they get back? Um, is the is still a question and that's the first thing it's like well look these are really cool but how do they get here um and so they're not like you say they're not actually where they would be happy the the minerals that are there are meant to have formed at these great depths so we're fairly comfortable with how rocks get down there but to, to bring them back we essentially need something that's um buoyant um so in the case of diamonds and kimberlites they're, they're moving through a magma but there's probably single crystals or smaller material but in a subduction zone probably the easiest way is if you have um, continental material that is also subducted down with them um, and because continental crust is uh, felsic or so it's richer in silica and aluminium um, and has less iron and magnesium that you have in 
in epiglites. So it actually doesn't get as dense. Um, and so therefore you have to have something that uh, that can act as a sort of host, a buoyant host that actually pulls it up. Um, but we have to have a geodynamic occurrence, which essentially one subducts continental lithosphere to a great depth and also somehow stalls that process. So the um, so that essentially the subduction zone unwinds the other way and it brings up these dense rocks. Um, yeah, so sort of goes all the way back to Archimedes, I guess, in, <laughs> in some way. <laughs> true, true. And the story about the, the crown, the king's crown. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, what, uh, what I was thinking is, is that, you know, listening to you explain how many kind of special uh, requirements are necessary for, for these rocks to go back up to the surface and for us to be able to access them. Because that's something else that maybe our listeners that aren't uh, geoscientists are not aware of, but we can't really look into actual samples that are, that are buried that deep into the earth. You know, we don't have anything that can get to these kind of depths and, uh, and collect samples. So we observed these processes that happen at, uh, at some point at those depths, but that are now at the surface, right? Mm. So they need to first... Uh, go through all of these special requirements to to exist. Then they need you know another set of special situations to come back up to the surface. So then when you talked about the the Roman road that cuts through one of these rocks, that's yeah. even you know an added level of just you know specialty. You know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Archaeology and geology in one. <laughs> exactly. In one exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. So metamorphic, like you say, metamorphic rocks. A lot of the time, it's a, it's a question of preservation, um, as well as other rock types. But you know, why are these things preserved, um, and enabling us to get a sort of snapshot of what's happening way beneath our feet, um, that enables us to actually do these things. And then other times, why are they not preserved? Um, so what what's happening to control that? Um, and to work through that puzzle, yeah. So you explained to us um, how these denser rocks uh, utilize uh, maybe less dense rocks or less bo uh, more buoyant rocks in order to return to the surface. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but didn't you study something like that in a recent uh, 2019 paper from Scientific Reports? Yep. Yep. Um, so yeah, can you just like you know walk us through that study and how did you contribute to this uh, to this question? Yeah. So um, yeah, we get to this question of well, I guess it's in two parts. Is one we've we need to get these dense rocks back to the surface, and uh, like uh, if you sort of subduct or bury continental material, it presents a good good um, host material that struggles to get as dense. Um, and therefore it can act as a sort of a mechanism to bring this material, the dense material back to the surface. So it, the paper that study was sort of looking at uh, that control. So, um, and it also beyond that, it's sort of like, well, at what point will that mechanism no longer be able to 
um, work efficiently. So okay. at some point, the continental material, the silicic material will become too dense that it shouldn't actually be able to bring uh, material back. So you have a, there's a broad sort of depth limit where we start to go, well, it's harder to see material from those conditions back at the surface. And then on top of that, um, in cases where we have continental material that we think has been subducted to great depths, we need something to pull it that far. <laughs> so you have, this, you have this sort of balancing game of, <laughs> we need to get it dense enough that it goes deep, <laughs> but we also need it not so dense that it comes back. Um, and so it's looking at that and then how do the rock record, what are the common conditions we um, are recording rocks that have been subducted um, that are back on the surface? And we you actually see some consistent uh, thresholds. So um, high pressure complexes that are predominantly oceanic material, they, they sort of struggle to get past 20, uh, sorry, two to, you know, 2.3 GPA, so depths of 60, 70 kilometers, uh, whereas continental crust can go much deeper, but it's probably unlikely that we're gonna see the material coming back from the transition zone, or it'd have to be exceptional circumstances where we have things that have come from you know, 400 or 500 kilometers back to the surface. Right. Yeah. So I have to admit that when I attempted to, to read your paper, I mean, I have no previous knowledge of any of this, so I, I struggle to understand. But now that you explained, I think I get it a little bit better. Yeah. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I imagine the, the oceanic crust being like the house from up and yeah. the, the, the continental crust are the balloons. Yep. And you yep. know, so the balloons will bring the house up. However, if the balloons start to pop, then, yep. you know, everything comes down and just stays there. Exactly. Yep. Yeah, yeah, that's a good good analogy of you've got to have enough helium in <laughs> to keep things <laughs> up. Um, and yeah, and so in the subduction zone, you have this awkward balance of uh, we need material to come back up, but we also need it to go down. Um, yeah. And so, and how is that, how do we see these things in the rock record? Like what, what depths things are getting to? And does that make sense? with mm -hmm. no based on the uh, minerals that form in these systems. Yeah. The other thing I wanted to ask is, oh yeah, so this, this question I also asked uh, from Maida when we talked about uh, ultra high temperature rocks. Mm -hmm. Uh, where in the world do you have record of ultra-high pressure in specific? So, um, there seems broadly there's starting to be locations all over the world. Um, they're continually being found. Uh, modern analytical techniques and uh, helping to sort of identify them. But the, the classic localities, uh, the Alps and the Italian Alps is is the... Got, the type locality. <laughs> um, and then there's very prominent ones in China as well, um, in both in sort of central China and in Western China. Um, 
but there's also examples in the Himalaya. Um, and so they are dispersed where we've had um, ancient sort of mountain chains where we've actually had subduction and then it's commonly progressed to some sort of continental collision um, mm -hmm. and the Alps being the sort of type type example of that tectonic setting um, and I, oh yeah I should say the other other prominent place is Norway um, is, yeah oh yeah yeah. Gonna <laughs> yeah yeah which is also a, a type locality but so yeah it, yeah exactly yeah they originally found in, in Italian Alps and Norway was the first places they identified ultra high pressure metamorphism yeah um and when you worked in new caledonia was that also with uh, high pressure rocks or yeah so they're high pressure rocks they're unfortunately not uh uhp ones <laughs> they're uh mm -hmm. they're uh, they're yeah they're probably got to about 60 kilometers in a subduction zone um but they they're interesting for different reasons because they have uh you you get from what we call sort of, you know, in blueschist rocks. So we have rocks that are full of glaucophane and garnet and an unusual mineral called lawsonite all the way up to eclogite. So they have this sort of spread in temperatures and pressures, uh, which is less commonly preserved in high pressure terrains. Yeah. But it's, and it's also, okay. a, it's a beautiful place to go and do geology. <laughs> Tropical <laughs> Island. I see. <laughs> French, French food. Uh, have you ever been uh, doing field work in Kalgoorlie, mate? I mean, uh, you know, pretty similar. Oh uh, yeah, <laughs> that's they... where I did my my PhD. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're definitely apples and apples there. <laughs> uh, all right, so um, Tim, I would like to learn a little bit more about Loon from your perspective, if that's okay. Sure. Yeah. Um, so Loon, of course, stands for Little Lab of the University of New England, right? Yep, yep, that's it. Uh, but what is exactly the Little Lab? So it, the Little Lab is is a multidisciplinary group um, that we've started with most, uh, you know, mostly early career researchers or early to mid career researchers, um, and it's focused around who's at UNE and it's, it's a mix of sort of geology uh, and paleontology. So it's bringing these sort of different skills that in many other places aren't actually um, prominently working together. Uh, and so we're trying to build those aspects um, in a, in a research group and to develop sort of different uh, projects around that. So, yeah, that's, that's what it is. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. Great, yeah. And um, when we had our meeting before, I heard uh, about the Loon Lounge. Yeah, <laughs> and it's supposed to be great. What is exactly the lounge? <laughs> well, it's it's uh, it's that sort of our own, own space where it's got couches and tables, and so it's a it's a sort of nice spot where people, uh, students, and and uh, we can get together and hang out and just sort of have somewhere that's. Uh, just sort of our own sort of space. We have meetings there. Mm. It's got air conditioning. That's always nice. <laughs> Unlike many people's offices. <laughs> and, <laughs> so yeah, yeah. It just sort of pre presents a nice space for people to be and tr and to have a nice environment. Yeah. So yeah, it sounds like it's a <laughs> it's a relaxed and supportive environment, which I I love. I always try to 
um, create you mm -hmm. know such a such an environment I mean this podcast being the perfect example of yep. it right yep um, how important do you think that those things are in order for students and also early career researchers to develop their skills in research and also you know make advances in their studies uh, I think it's probably the most important thing uh, you know to have to have a place where people feel comfortable and people um, feel inclusive. Uh, it encourages, um, you know, much more sort of diverse ideas and collaboration and, and people want to be part of that. Um, so, you know, otherwise it all becomes a bit like a chore. <laughs> and if mm. people don't want to be there and things like that, it's not, it's not pleasant. So uh, we're hoping, you know, we're creating an environment where there's comfort, people can express different ideas and challenges because that's how, you know, scientific problems, that's the best way to solve them is to have different views, different arguments, uh, all within an enthusiastic and comfortable in, in setting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Preaching to the choir here. Yeah. Um, but but uh, yeah, like with, with the graduate students, there is this uh, belief in a lot of people that it's kind of like a rite of passage to, you know, have a very, very stressful time doing research. And, uh, and I mean, I see like the value of it a little bit. You know, I definitely had my share of, uh, of uh, obstacles during, during the completion of my PhD. And I think that it did make me grow and it did develop me into a, a good scientist. But I think the other side of the coin is just as important. You know, you also need to be able to look and, uh, and um, see that there is, you know, people supporting you and that you can, you know, feel confident on your ability to dig yourself out of the hole. And mm -hmm. all of that come through this, exactly this collaborative and relaxed environment. I think that's a very yep. essential part of it. Yeah, yeah. So, and certainly, you know, at different times, everybody faces different challenges. And, you know, if it's work-related, it's important to have other means, even if people can't help you specifically with that problem, if it's having a laugh or whatever, you know, to, to get you through those circumstances um, is, is really important. Otherwise, it just feels like everything's collapsing in on you. <laughs> and yes, and PhDs are, and graduate studies are stressful time. Um, but yeah, yeah, I don't think it necessarily has to be, everything is stressful. <laughs> Trying to have uh, different outs to, to help people through, yeah. Um, so obviously you guys have a bunch of projects going on and that involves working with different researchers and students. What characteristics do you look for on researchers and students that want to become part of your dynamic research group? So uh, my opinion is the most, the thing that I look for the most is usually enthusiasm. So, and uh, so it could be enthusiasm about a topic, it could be enthusiasm about, um, you know, different skills. Like we do a lot of field work, a lot of people get into geology for enthusiasm for outdoors. And so I think if once you have that and you have that enthusiasm and it's infectious in, in an environment where other people are thinking the same way, then, then you can sort of get into these different problems, whatever they are, to, to sort of uh, move them forward. And because and 
yeah, if you enjoy a topic, <laughs> inevitably you, you're more likely to see it through and you'll actually identify things and, and, um, and, you know, see pitfalls and other methods or ideas and, and develop new ways to go about it. So for me, it's mainly enthusiasm. Yeah. What advices would you give to young researchers that are looking for a way to find, you know, their scientific calling, like the thing they're supposed to do? And, uh, and how do they identify what are, you know, what are the, the signs of a good work environment, such as the one that you guys established there? Hmm. So my, my, I would suggest you can sort of got to follow a passion. Um, and sometimes it takes a while to find it and that's okay. And, and sometimes it takes just getting in there and you're going, Oh, I like this. Or I don't like this, but, and so sometimes it's a bit deeper than the surface. So I think it's mm -hmm. worth giving things a go and, and seeing what your passion is. And if, if you find something, you know, you should, you should go that way. Uh, I, I think it's, it's tough to see people that enjoy one thing and they've decided to go into a different topic or whatever for different reasons. And they, they, they always want to be doing something else, but doing the other thing. And so I think it's, and take that time and, and consider what it is you want to do and then, then go, okay, well, how can I make this happen? And, and, it, and it's always worth talking to people, uh, potential supervisors or whatever about what you're into and seeing how how they can accommodate that or can't accommodate that and that'll should influence your decision um and so then building on that i think it's important to look and see that the the environment around that those circumstances that or places you might want to study uh fit what you want and and, and you have like-minded people um and then they to encourage, um, to support, um, you know, I remember of my PhD, they had a, a good strong cohort of other, other PhD students that were there, um, and, and, and supervisors that would help and, uh, in not just on the science, but in all aspects uh, of your career development and things like that. So I think you look for those things, look for people that you seem to identify with, things that you're interested in and um and have that supportive relaxed environment that you can see yourself uh, being part of because it is important otherwise you know yeah you you're it's yeah. one thing to be doing something you really love but if the environment around it is not ideal you might not be happy for sure i wanted to ask if you try to actively promote inclusion and diversity within Loon? And if so, what kind of strategies do you see as necessary to achieve these goals? Uh, yep, yeah, definitely. We want an inclusive environment uh, and we're actively seeking that. And I think it's very important. Um, and, you know, I, in terms of strategies, it's, I think it's just encouraging and, and presenting it as, as that and having examples. I mean, that's not always, not always easy, but the easiest way for people to identify that is that it's diverse is to see, see that it is diverse um, mm -hmm. as best as possible and to see that it's yeah. possible. And um, there is no limitations to that. That's, that's how I sort of see that it's, 
trying to encourage and then people can see people of their circumstances in that setting and therefore it should be um, encouraging for them. Yeah. Um, so for our next segment, uh, we'd like to ask always the same three questions at the end of every episode. These are questions that are a bit more personal and they are designed to make each guest a bit more familiar to the listeners. Uh, they, always, they also allow us to compare experiences and, uh, and opinions across different geoscience research fields. And the first question, as always, is how did you first decide to become a geoscientist? <laughs> um, so I, I always like, I've always loved the outdoors, um, uh, different things, bushwalking, skiing, uh, and these sort of things. So I think I, I always found it interesting about how, how the environment around me was forming, um, and, and what controls that. And so that's where it largely started. And then, um, I did did some geology through school. And then about the time when I was deciding for university, I sort of went, Oh, well, yeah, I'll, uh, I want to do a science and I want it to be something around, um, understanding, um, sort of physical earth. Uh, and so that that's where it sort of went. And then in first year geology, I really enjoyed the geology subjects and decided that was the way to go. And I had some good lecturers that were excellent mentors and encouraged me, uh, and, in, and had a passion for it that I really um, had a bond to. So uh, mm-hmm. that's where it sort of started from. Yeah. Um, the next question is, what are some of the specifics of the research that you are conducting at present? I mean, we talked about some of your recent publications, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, right now, what are you working on? So I'm working on a few different things. Um, also, one of the things we're looking at is there's a thick pile of um, volcanic package nearby that's um, mm-hmm. actually formed. It's a series of super eruptions that formed right on the Permian-Triassic uh, boundary, and so we're seeing how that might have, how big it was, and how much it might have contributed to uh, the biggest mass extinction event, or at least locally. Uh, we're also doing different things on, uh, well, I'm doing different things on high pressure metamorphism uh, in the New England. We have um, we have an unusual occurrence of macro diamonds in the New England area, but they're actually not ones related to cratons. They're actually ones related to subduction zones. Uh, oh wow! And so uh, they're <laughs> they're a little bit enigmatic about why they're here and how they got here. So. Uh, Definitely, yeah. yeah, and I'm still doing some things on New Caledonia and some other high pressure, ultra high pressure belt, metamorphic belts, uh, looking at uh, the controls on how minerals grow and um, the processes, you know, to diffuse elements in them and uh, how they're preserved and things like that. Yeah. Uh, what do you enjoy doing when you are not geosciencing? <laughs> Yep. So skiing is probably my, my, my favorite hobby. Um, I, I like photography. So um, mainly landscape photography. So it's nice to go out bushwalking as a hobby and take photographs um, of different things. 
Uh, I also like to play cricket. Oh, which there is, you go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is a very well strain English sport. So, um, so most of my I like just like hobbies outside mm-hmm. largely. So it's just nice to get out uh, and do different things like that. I, I don't. I quite like um, cycling as well. Yeah, um, that's nice. So, so Tim, thank you so much for uh, talking to us today. Thank you for explaining a little bit more about. Uh, high pressure rocks and also clarifying to our listeners you know um, what loon is all about and uh, what kind of environment you can expect from uh, from the place so yeah I I had a a great time talking to you thank you for yeah thank you Nice Chats is part of the Geology Podcast Network and it is sponsored by Traveling Geologist. This special series is sponsored by the University of New England and is produced in partnership with the Lito Lab of UNE. Follow Traveling Geologist on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. More episodes of this and other GPN podcasts are available at travelinggeologist.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And that includes Apple Podcasts and Spotify. The next episode, we will teach you how to go meteorite hunting. Sorry, friends. I know that some of you listen all the way to the end just for the sign-off, uh, but this week I have nothing for you, and that's because Reviewer 2 thinks that these sign-offs are irrelevant and wants me to cite three of their papers instead. Oof, see you in two weeks. Mm-hmm.